The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. This is the People's History of Kansas City, a podcast from KCUR Studios. I'm Suzanne Hogan. It was the year 1950 at a small studio near downtown Kansas City, Missouri, and Andrew Skip Carter realized he was just about $200 short of paying the phone hookup he needed to put his brand new radio station, KPRS AM, on the air. But as the legend goes, that didn't stop this radio pioneer. Skip was a no-nonsense person. I would guess that man had crazy, crazy, I won't use the word, but... It took a lot of gumption. Skip Carter, a black man who was fed up with racism, especially within the broadcast industry he was so passionate about, was determined to create something completely new in Kansas City and west of the Mississippi River, a radio station by and for black people. So the way the story goes, he took a line from the console, climbed out the studio window, standing on top of the windowsill, reaching, he connects his broadcast to the telephone line by hand. He literally was hanging out the window when they very first started. And that gumption, valor you might even call it, would start something that would make American radio history. It was an R&B station, but it had a variety of programming, some jazz, some gospel. It was very difficult very early on to, for African Americans to get involved in, in broadcasting in any way whatsoever. He wanted to have an opportunity for black voice. When I was growing up, it was the only uh, radio station that was playing rhythm and blues and soul music. Freddie Bell on KWKI, Freddie Bell on KPRS. It's 7.15 a.m., 35 degrees. Be careful out there on the highways and byways. Here are the four tops. Freddie Bell would go on to work for Andrew Skip Carter as an announcer in 1970. But as a kid growing up in Kansas City, he says KPRS was the only place where you could hear popular black artists of the day. And it was the only radio station in our community that dealt with our community needs. Speaking, of course, of the African-American community. Fans of radio and podcasts know that there's something special about that sonic connection. That feeling you get when you tune into a favorite show, hear new music, or the voice of an on-air personality that you love or love to hate or whatever. And just that camaraderie you can feel towards a show or a station. Or I guess digital media platforms nowadays. It can look different to different generations, but the principle is the same. Content that is broadcast out into the public can connect on deep levels. It moves us emotionally. It can educate us, call us to action, spark ideas. It's powerful. When Andrew Skip Carter was coming up in the early part of the 20th century, Black America was left out of that broadcast space. And though commercial Black broadcast ownership has grown since Skip Carter's days, it still only represents less than 2% of the market. Today, advocates are calling for more diversity in ownership, saying who's in charge at the top plays a key role in how information is shared, expanding opportunities, and building more meaningful connections with diverse audiences. It makes a difference from the top. It makes a difference in editorial policy. 
uh, it makes a difference in the news you cover and the news you report. Skip Carter's reach to make that connection from a windowsill back in 1950 was all part of that bigger reach to amplify African-American music, ideas, conversations. Now the company he started, Carter Broadcast Group, runs an AM and FM gospel station, an HD station of classic oldies, and KPRS-FM Hot 103 Jams. Hot 103 Jams, Kansas City's number one for hip-hop and R&B. It is your boy, Playmaker. Hot 103 Jams is qualifying you for a chance to win $1,000 in mad cash. Hip-hop and R&B. And don't forget to vaccinate. What's up, Kansas City? It's your girl, Delia, a.k.a. the Queen of Radio. And what's good, KC? It's your girl, Mari, baby, a.k.a. Mariana. This episode, it's the story of Kansas City's Carter Broadcast Group, the oldest ongoing Black-owned radio company in the United States, and how its founder sparked a whole new generation of Black voices in the business. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories, and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Want to hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance, and boy, it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org radioactive. The godfather of the nation's oldest Black-owned radio company, Andrew Skip Carter, was born in Boston in 1919, but he grew up in Georgia. Skip told Broadcasting Magazine that he loved swimming, hunting, and fishing. He built his first radio in high school, went to college, and studied physics at Georgia State, and then he served in the United States Army during World War II. He built his first radio transmitter in his dorm room. So he was very smart that way. Mike Carter, Skip Carter's grandson, describes his grandpa as a serious, driven, big man. A force, really. A guy who was determined with big dreams. He wanted to have an opportunity to do radio as a whole. After his time in the service, Skip went to New York and attended the RCA Institute, which is America's oldest radio school, where he learned about radio engineering. But he also learned firsthand about racism in the industry. He was told that he had no talent for announcing. He tried to get involved with the station on the East Coast, but he was turned down because of the color of his skin. Eventually, Skip ended up at a firm in Chicago that was specifically working to develop black radio programming and black advertising. But discrimination within the industry, in particular within the Federal Communications Commission or the FCC, that government agency that oversaw all of broadcasting in the U.S. was a major hurdle. But before we talk about what Skip did, it's important to understand just how prevalent discrimination was within the industry. First of all, there were very few African-Americans who could afford to build a radio station. But the FCC uh, specifically had policies that made it much more difficult for African-Americans to to get stations. Jim Winston is the president of the National Association of Black-Owned Broadcasters. But Jim also actually used to work for the FCC. He likes to tell this story. I was working in Washington as a communications lawyer, and a friend of mine who was working in the office of the chairman of the FCC called me one day and said, Jim, Commissioner Robert E. Lee would like to... Uh, interview you for a legal advisor position. I said, Commissioner Robert E. Lee, the Republican. I said, 
Does he know critical facts about me? Jim's friend assured him that Lee did know critical facts about him, basically that he's black. So I went over and I sat down uh, in his office. And the first thing he said to me is, people think I'm related to that Confederate general. I got nothing to do with him. I am named after Robert Emmett, who was an Irish revolutionary. I'm an Irish Catholic from Chicago. And so I said, oh, okay. Jim says from there they had a great conversation, and he was offered a job on the spot, which he accepted. He had a rewarding time working for Robert E. Lee and the FCC for years. But when Jim joined the FCC in 1978, it was a different era from when Andrew Skip Carter and other aspiring black broadcasters were coming up in the early 1900s and basically hitting a wall. If you said you were going to do a narrow programming format tailored to African-American audiences, the FCC thought that was too narrow. Everybody should be a general general market broadcaster. So they didn't like that. And then there was the huge issue of cost. They had policies that said if you were going to get a license, you had to be able to demonstrate that you could operate for an entire year without any income from your station. So that, you know, that that made licensing available only to the wealthiest uh, so uh, so it was very difficult very early on to for African-Americans to get involved in, in broadcasting in any way whatsoever. Despite the hurdles, black broadcasters did start to break through. Let's back up a little and give some historical context about the bigger path of black radio in the United States. Even by the time Andrew Skip Carter was a small boy during the 1920s, some networks did start to sponsor a few hours of weekly programming for black audiences, which included live musicals and performances. On Chicago stations, there was the All Negro Hour and Destination Freedom, a weekly docudrama, and the first black soap opera, Here Comes Tomorrow, which aired on WJJD, which featured the late legendary Jack Gibson, AKA Jack the Rapper, another icon in black radio. Here Comes Tomorrow probably raised the feathers of a lot of people that were in Iowa and and downstate Illinois that didn't understand, you know, the race uh, relationship that we was trying to build. Outside of Chicago, WDIA went on the air in Memphis in 1947, becoming the first station to completely program black personalities and target black audiences, though it was owned by two white men. I think it gave somewhat of of, of respect and hope and inspiration to the people. The late Martha Jean the Queen Steinberg started her career as a WDIA DJ. The DIA, they could feel akin because somebody recognized them and called their name and told them they were important. And then there was WERD, which went on the air in Atlanta with the help of Jack the Rapper. October the 5th, 1949, on a Monday morning. At six o'clock, I flipped the switch and said, Good morning, Atlanta. We are here. (laughs) (laughs) WERD was housed within the same building as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Southern Christian Leadership Conference. The station aired a range of programming, everything from cooking shows, jazz, talk, classical, and the lunch call show. It was revolutionary. Well, it's 12 noon and it's time for lunch calls. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the lunch call show. It's radio's matter 60 minutes of music, mirth, and merriment. Myself, I was a morning man, and I called myself the morning mayor of Atlanta. Jack the Rapper said that the station tried to emulate the programming of other white commercial radio stations, but said they'd bring their own take to it. And it worked. 
And I made all the decisions what's going to happen in Atlanta today. That was my thing. Mm -hmm. So they said, uh, Jockey Jack, the morning mayor of Atlanta, proceeds and presides over the whole city. I said, good morning, Atlanta. What are we going to do today? And then I tell Atlanta what I want him to do. Jack the Rapper would go on to help start a black radio station in Kentucky and would later befriend Andrew Skip Carter and Kansas City's Carter Broadcast Group. But to get back to Skip, around that same time Atlanta's WERD went on the air in 1949, Andrew Skip Carter was really frustrated and still struggling to get his own foot in the door. He saw the FCC's practices as not only a total failure to engage with black America, but also an untapped market a missed economic opportunity, so he called it out. Carter wrote to the National Association of Broadcasters, saying that he felt the industry was prejudiced and had no place for a black man. And Broadcasting Magazine published it. And this got the attention of former Kansas governor and failed presidential candidate Republican Alf Landon, who also owned a couple radio stations in the Kansas City area. Alf and Skip became friends, and Alf let Skip create a couple hours of black programming on his Leavenworth station. And it was really successful. So Alf Landon then helped Skip get the equipment he needed to start his own station. I mean, he literally took a flatbed truck up to Alf Landon's place and brought back this transmitter, went to his garage, and put this thing together. Alf Landon helped Skip out a lot. And he eventually got his FCC broadcast license. His Missouri Broadcasters Association biography states he was the second black man in the country to receive one. And then he was able to find a space down at the old municipal baseball stadium. And he put that transmitter in an old Sam's ticket booth and ran wire from the back end of that ticket booth to the right field rafters and turned on KPRS AM. And this resourcefulness gets us back to that day in 1950, when Skip Carter went rogue and found himself dangling out of a window to connect his signal by hand, making history. It's a story that his wife, Mildred Carter, liked to share with reporters. My grandmother was a very strong personality, and she didn't take a lot of crap from people. In an interview, Mildred was asked, what it was that attracted her to her husband. Her response, quote, he had a desire to do something. He was very creative. I appreciated the drive he had. I know my grandmother had a bar. It was called Millie's. They used to have all of the, like the mainstay jazz artists, Count Basie, uh, Dizzy Gillespie, Wes Montgomery. Skip and Mildred married 10 years after the station first went on the air in 1950. And Millie would go on to be a force of her own right within the company. She pushed for KPRS to be simulcast as an FM station, when FM radios were still a new burgeoning format. And the station became a real opportunity for other local black talent, like Kansas City's Larry McCormick. Here's Larry. Okay, thank you, Hal. As far as the Lakers are concerned, Irwin Johnson really is magic. The Los Angeles. The late actor, who was also a beloved TV anchor for many years at a station in Los Angeles. One of his first gigs was working at KPRS AM in the 1950s during the morning drive time slot. Here he is from an interview from the Indiana University Archive of African American Music and Culture. In Kansas City, how many other African American uh, personalities were on the air? Three. Actually, four if you include the general manager who did some things, too. That general manager, of course, was Skip Carter. 
His vision was for KPRS to be a commercial radio station that educated as well as entertained. Programming included popular music of the era, jazz and gospel, and the announcers shared church announcements, information about community events, and they invited social justice leaders to share their messages. The SCLC and uh, Fesley Thompson. Mike Carter says KPRS was an outlet for important local conversations about justice and equality during the growing civil rights movement. Bruce Watkins, Leon Jordan, and so they all came to the radio station because that's where we could actually get stuff set. The Solidarity March of the Poor People's Campaign is June 19th, this coming Wednesday. Join Mrs. Martin Luther King. Mike Carter says when the riots broke out in Kansas City after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in 1968, KPRS put out messages calling for peace and calm. There will be that glorious day. Of the few bits of archival footage that exist from KPRS back in the day, this tape reel from 1968 is a compilation of speeches that they aired soon after his murder. Nonviolently, not hating anybody. It's going on to take our grievances to the seat of government. Mike Carter was just a small kid during the 1960s, that iconic time of protest and call for change in America. It turns out it was also an era that marked a blossoming new generation of Carter talent. As a young kid, Mike spent a lot of his free time at the station. You know, we lived in Raytown, so during the summers, I would go in with our family uh, to the radio station, which I thought was the coolest thing since sliced bread. And as an eight-year-old, Mike Carter basically started working at KPRS. So I just started piddling around and doing a little production work, and it was really kind of fun, you know? One of our jacks, his name was Chris King, he said, well, Michael, let me show you how to do this the right way. So back in the day, there were turntables, and I had to learn how to cue up a record. And the next song coming up right now is Wes Montgomery from And You Let It Go. So Mike, at eight, had the Mike Lewis show, Lewis is his middle name, spinning jazz records live on the air. I mean, it was just fun, and you know, and every now and then I'd mess up and I'd not cue it up right, and I'd go, and the next song is, and there was dead air. And so my grandmother was upstairs, and she would be like, why is there dead air? You know, for those who know radio, dead air is no good. The 1970s were a new era in black America. The era of Jim Crow was not long past, but some barriers were breaking down. Black music was more widely shared across mainstream radio waves. So let's say Stevie Wonder had a, you know, big song. White stations would play that a little bit. Or James Brown had a big song. Or, you know, or Aretha Franklin, respect. You know, they play those songs because what? They were trying to get ratings. Well. You know, that's all fine and dandy, but uh, the business owners would not buy those stations based on black listenership. More black owners were joining the business and buying stations, but it was still really challenging. Andrew Skip Carter had long seen marketing and community connection as an important part of the whole model. Mike says his grandpa had a dedicated sales team that would hit the streets, getting out into the community, going business to business to sell ads that would keep the station afloat. But for other minority-led stations, access to licenses and then ad sales were a whole other layer of struggles. 
There was still a lot of discrimination within the big advertisement agencies, and that really affected a station's bottom line. As a response, the National Association of Black-Owned Broadcasters, or NABOB, was formed in 1976. Jim Winston is the current president. Advertisers did not see the business value of advertising on Black-owned media, and they didn't see the value of the Black audience as a target audience. Jim says NABOB was created with two objectives. One, to increase the number of African-Americans who owned radio and television stations. And two, to improve the business climate in which they operated. And that was a climate that still very much favored white-only audiences. In 1977, the FCC held a conference to discuss what it could do to promote minority ownership in broadcasting. This came as a result of pressure from Congress, as well as a court case that told the FCC it needed to do something about minority ownership. And Andrew Skip Carter was part of those early NABOB days. Back in the 1970s, when it was first formed, there were only 37 Black-owned radio stations in the United States, and there were no Black-owned television stations. A year after the formation of the group, the FCC adopted its minority ownership policy, which offered a tax certificate to stations if they were to sell to a minority-owned and controlled company. The station sales were all going through an old boy network. However, once the tax certificate came about, suddenly our phones were ringing. Hey, would you like to buy my radio station? And of course, it wasn't altruism that was causing our phones to ring. It was people looking for a tax deferral. Within the first 20 years of NABOB, minority-owned radio would increase by almost seven times and would grow from no Black-owned TV stations to 25. The 1970s also marked a particular shift for the Carter family. They started a 24-hour gospel channel. The family moved to Cocoa Beach, Florida. They opened a corporate office and became one of the first fully automated stations in the Midwest. For Mike Carter, Skip and Millie's eight-year-old DJ grandson, it was a hard move at first, but he adjusted. Through high school, Mike Carter learned more and more about the ins and outs of the company, but he also had a lot of growing up to do. That was my after-school job. You know, I just come in, do my deal, and Cocoa Beach, Florida was a surf town, so I loved to surf and whatnot, and I, I did what any 16, 17, 18-year-old kid would do. I thought I was all of that. I had a nice car. And one day, Skip Carter called me into his office. So Did you call him Skip Carter? No, him? I called him Mr. Carter at the radio station. You never did you ever call him Grandpa? No, his name affectionately for me was Poppy. And for my grandmother, it was Chi-Chi. If Skip Carter or Poppy called you in, it was kind of, I was excited about what he was going to tell me next. Lo and behold, when, he, when I walked into the office, he said, Mike, come on in. And you never sat down at his desk until he told you to sit down. So that was the first thing I understood. So when you sat down, you didn't sit in the back of the chair. You sat on the edge of the chair. He says, well, Michael, how are you doing? And I said, well, I, I'm, I'm doing okay. He goes, yes, I understand that. I understand that you're doing okay. And he said, well, today, here's what's going to happen today, son. I said, yes, sir. He goes, well, I want you to give me your keys. And I said, okay, keys to what? Because I'm thinking he wants my car keys or something. He goes, I want the keys to the radio station, and I also want you to reach in that back pocket of yours and take that credit card out that you've been using, and I want you to throw that on the table 
you're fired. I thought it was going to be something like, because now you're taking over the company. No, no, you no, were, no. You were fired. I, I was done. I was crushed. I didn't know what to do. I'm like, oh, my God. It went from being kind of the king of the hill to, oh, my God, what? So I went to work at McDonald's. So every now and then, my grandfather would pop into McDonald's. Now, my grandfather literally cooked for our family. You know, he made big pots and everything like this. So going to McDonald's for him was kind of like, I think he was checking up on me. So I would see him. And I would mop up to him and I say, hi, Poppy, how you doing? Like, Michael, how are you? And, you know, so this went on for a while. A few years went by and eventually Mike got a job as a camera operator. As, you know, as that time went by, he called me back to his office. And I go, oh, damn, now what did I do? I mean, I'm out, I, I'm out of the station. I haven't really done anything wrong. I mean, I was a good kid, you know, I never got in too much trouble, you know. But he uh, he called me back in and he said, sit down. And I said, okay, so I'm sitting there going, okay, now what is he going to do to me? He asked me a question. And the question was, what did you learn? So as I thought about it for a minute, I was like, okay, I got to make this one right. So I said, I learned the value of my family's business. And he goes, well, Michael, that's a pretty damn good answer. You know, I know you are a bullshitter, but here's the deal. You can't bullshit a bullshitter. And you know what? That one was a good answer. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. We'll let you come back to the radio station. But if you ever get out of line again, you will never see the inside of this radio station ever again. Into the 1980s, Mike started a family and continued to work for the company. He eventually decided it was better for the company if he moved back to Kansas City. His grandma and grandpa stayed in Florida, as Skip's health wasn't so good. In 1987, Carter Broadcast Group launched their 100,000-watt transmitter. It was part of a big campaign to push their signal to reach all parts of Kansas City's growing metro. So they held an event to kick it off. So this is May 15th, which is, happens to be our anniversary date that we got our, our uh, license. So my grandmother comes up. There was a big ceremony with community leaders and politicians. And Mike was standing around with his mom, super excited, looking up at this new tower as his grandma was about to address the crowd. Because of his ailing health, his grandpa, Andrew Skip Carter, was absent. With this new signal, we would be 250 miles in all directions. And my grandmother goes, and our new president is our grandson, Michael Carter. And I looked over to my mom and I go, Mom, did she just say me? She goes, Mike, get out there, get out there. So I walked out there to, to, to my grandmother, you know, just like, what, what, what? She says, come on out here, baby, come on, come on out here. So she said, now, you know, your grandfather couldn't be here today. I get a little choked up, but she goes, but he wanted me to give you something. She reached in her purse and handed me keys. She handed me back the keys from my grandfather. And she said, now, your grandfather said, don't mess this up. 
which marks another special thing about Carter Broadcast Group. It's also one of the longest family-owned radio stations in the country. One of the first things Mike did was make the push for the station to get away from the automated format and get back to live, a more in-the-moment type of feel. Personalities like midday host Chris King and morning announcer Freddie Bell are fan favorites from that era. Welcome to the Freddie Bell Show. Today, it's Super Monday. Your chance to win a brand new Cadillac. <laughs> I, get, I get called out for this uh, between some of my friends. You know, like the way that I talk when I'm just hanging out with friends versus when I kind of flip into a mode when I'm on air announcing that uh, is a little bit Absolutely. more. Yeah. Do, do you do that? A- a- Absolutely. You know, we used to, I think we eventually uh, caught it puking, but it was like, hey there, you know, welcome to KVWKI. Yours truly, Freddie Bell, jamming the jams, you know, that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> so yeah, we, we kind of used the radio voice and eventually it became passe as the years passed. It was like, just be yourself on the radio. Freddie says one of his favorite parts of the job was getting out into the community, creating that bond with listeners, and enhancing that type of community-minded programming they'd do. The most iconic example of that was a show led by Kansas City legend Alvin Brooks, a former police officer, civil rights advocate, and founder of Ad Hoc, Group Against Crime. Back in the day, he had partnered with Skip and Millie Carter to do a huge on-air fundraising campaign when Ad Hoc first got started. They raised money for a reward fund that helped accrue tips for unsolved crimes. That appeal later turned into a popular call-in radio show, Voices from Midtown, hosted by Alvin Brooks in an effort to keep that line of communication and community focus open. I don't know how many crimes Alvin Brooks and Ad Hoc had solved. I don't know how many people they found missing young people, uh, people who were having problems that they they committed the crime, but they basically just gave themselves up. Mike Carter also helped lead a campaign called Harmony in a World of Difference, which addressed black representation and challenged stereotypes in the media. If you're going to show a news story, right, if a black kid or black man was arrested, then you say black man. If it was a white man that got arrested, You just can't say man. You have to say white man that was arrested. When you're doing human interest stories, you can't show white kids playing at Worlds of Fun and show black kids playing in a, you know, a fire hydrant. The idea was to show that everybody's pretty much equal. And more on the entertainment side, there were shows on KPRS-FM like Generation Rap. Generation Rap is on KPRS Kansas City. A youth-produced show that featured all types of young talent. We would then talk about how to attain a healthy relationship, and lastly, we will talk about our first kisses. Remember to stay tuned, and now without further ado, let's kick it back to your host, Marianne and Delia. So there's Patti LaBelle. Um, MC Hammer, Derek Thomas. Walking through the halls of Carter Broadcast Group, it's crazy to think about all the people this place has touched over the years, from famous entertainers to budding local talent and fans. Our grandfather, his whole intent of starting the station was to be a voice for the community, and in particular, that's time for the black community. We're more diverse now, but, I mean, that's what we do. We super serve the black community, and I think that's where it's really important to all of us, you know what I mean, is to be a voice for them. An outlet. 
Chris Carter, Mike Carter's cousin, is vice president of Carter Broadcast Group. Our struggle was much different than the previous generation, you know what I mean? So we've had it, they always say it's true that the next generation has it better than the previous generation, so our struggle was much different. What do you think is your struggle? The competition, I mean, it's just... It's more like the business side. The business side of it. I mean, yeah, radio is different now so than it was in the last 10 years. Andrew Skip Carter passed away in 1989. For years, his wife, Millie Carter, had a telephone that was a direct line to the station so she could listen in and give her critiques and any and all feedback from her Florida home. When my grandfather died... We had a person that wanted to buy the radio station for my grandmother, and my grandmother says, no, absolutely not. And the number that was offered was very lucrative. But she said, no, my grandson wants to do this. And and she didn't sell it. Back in the year 2000, Mike and the station hosted a big gala celebrating their then 50 years in the business. Millie Carter came up for the festivities, as did Boys to Men, Smokey Robinson, Shaka Khan, and tons of big-time names. Mike remembers it all as a really special time to celebrate the lasting impact of the Carter family's legacy. Three years later, Millie Carter passed away. My grandmother waited, and I swear to you, she died on January 1st, 2003, 103-3. To Mike Carter... The bigger role of this station and his family's legacy is not something he takes lightly. And he's been met with his own offers to cash in and sell it all. And I'll guarantee you, if I sold this radio station and I took that money, my grandmother would be haunting me for the rest of my life. She would stand there at the end of my bed going, what the hell do you think you're doing? You didn't do this. You know, so I I won't do that just because I'd be scared of her. <laughs> oh, my God. That's funny. On top of being CEO of Carter Broadcast Group, he also serves as vice president of NABOB, which still serves a pivotal role in advocating for representation and ownership at a time when larger corporate media conglomerates like iHeartRadio are dominating the market. If you get a single station in the market and somebody else has eight stations, they have ways of, of maneuvering their advertising rates so that they can compete with you for, uh, for listeners for the same, the same music that you're playing and give advertisers rates that are much less than yours and what you would, what you would not be able to survive with. So that has been a problem for many years now. And we've seen, uh, as a result, we've seen a lot of our members vacate the industry. Jim Winston of NABOB says three major things happened in the 90s that set back minority ownership. In 1995, that tax certificate policy was eliminated by Congress. Then a Supreme Court decision made it hard for government entities to award preferences based on race, which has resulted in the FCC still having no effective minority ownership policy. And then a year later, Congress passed the Telecommunications Act, which eliminated the limit of how many radio stations a company could own. Well, it's a huge loss for the audiences because what happens is these large companies uh, homogenize their, their, their programming. So they have, they have program directors who will, who will be programming 100 stations. Uh, and every station was going to sound exactly the same. You lose local air talent opportunities. You lose opportunities for new music because the same stations are playing all, all playing the same music. Jim Winston says there are now 220 Black-owned radio stations in the country, but that's still less than 2% of the total market, which makes Carter Broadcast Group, this Kansas City leader and innovator, more than just a local gem. It's truly a national treasure. 
For the current longtime staff like Jeff Charney and Chris Stimson, that significance is not lost. We're a heritage radio station. It's important to capture some of these stories. Pretty much feel like I grew up with these people, you know what I mean? I feel like I actually became a boy to a man up here. It's crazy. Mike Carter says he still gets excited when he drives around the city and hears all types of people blasting any of his radio stations. He jokes that he does everything short from rolling up right next to folks being like, hey, hey, that's my family's radio station. To state that we're the oldest black-owned radio company in America today, that's, you know, that's huge. His MO? keeping that point of pride front and center, while staying humble and never losing sight of that bigger dream and all the work previous generations went through, the struggles and the triumphs that made this family-owned business what it is today. And if you want that business to survive, you gotta remember what you're trying to do, all right? This is not about Mike Carter. That doesn't say Mike Carter on the top of that building. That says Carter, and that's my grandfather. People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios. This episode was reported, produced, and mixed by me, Suzanne Hogan, with editing by Barb Shelley and Mackenzie Martin. Our intern is Hannah Bailey. Music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions, and you heard Mahalia Jackson, Nat King Cole, The Four Tops, James Brown, Lauren Hill, Warren G., Megan The Stallion, Wes Montgomery, Curtis Mayfield, Mother's Finest, Zap, Tom Tom Club, and Cool and the Gang. A special thanks to the Carter Broadcast Group, the Carter family and friends for the amazing stories and access to photographs and old tape reels, some of which you got to hear throughout the episode, and the Indiana University Archive of African American Music and Culture, and the Mars Sound Archive at UMKC, and community leader Alvin Brooks for his insight. And if you're looking for a good Kansas City history read, check out his book, Finding Us Together. Coming up in two weeks on the podcast... There's no way to have Stonewall become sort of like this national fulcrum and spark point without the work that Drew did. Years before the Stonewall uprising, a local leader started Kansas City's first gay rights organization. And then he worked to unite a national movement. Until then, find us at kcur.org slash people's history and on Twitter at phkcpod. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Take care and thanks for listening. <laughs>